in an essay on her poetry and poetry in general, Jane Hirschfeld wrote that poetry's work is the clarification and magnification of being. And I think it's a wonderful line because I think it actually describes what we're doing here, that our practice together and our time together and this way of looking so closely and carefully at our experience is actually a practice of the clarification and magnification of being. So tonight I want to look at and magnify and possibly clarify, but at least walk around, um, gumption and grit. Some years ago I was sitting a retreat at Yucca Valley and um, Steve Smith gave a talk about gumption. And I really enjoyed it. I don't actually remember a whole lot about it. Um, But this idea of gumption, which is such a Western word, you're not going to find it on any of the Buddhist lists anywhere. (laughs) Nor will you find grit on any of the Buddhist lists. Um, But it's this sense of, oh, I found some other words that kind of went with it, um, spunk and resolve, that is on a Buddhist list actually, and steadfastness and diligence. So this, this kind of hanging in there regardless sort of space. We've been passing around a, a pre-publication copy of Jack's new book, which is called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. And <laughs> I actually think that gumption is about the laundry before and after the ecstasy. It's mostly laundry and not so much ecstasy. The other image that came as I thought about it and a story that came back to me, although actually as we all talked about it in the teacher group, there's a number of stories, was one of my favorite children's stories, which was the little engine that could. And if you remember, I think I remember this correctly, the little engine had to haul all these cars up over the hill and um, the bigger engines, for whatever reason, were too busy or weren't able to be there. So she, I like to think of her as she, uh, got the job of towing all these cars up over the hill and, and she had a mantra and her mantra was, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. So maybe for chanting tonight. Well, I'll sit here and go, I think I can, I think I can. Eighteen months ago, I was backpacking in the Sierras. And the second day out, we went up over a 12,000-foot pass. And um, it's pretty high under any circumstances. Um, I was 56 at the time, and it was only the second day out. So I really wasn't completely used to being at such high altitude. I actually remembered John's story about put your awareness in your feet. Because as I went from in that space from about 10,000 feet to about 12,000 feet, um, that was about the only thing that I could do, was to put my awareness in my feet. And I remember sort of putting one foot down 
and then breathing, and then picking up the other one. It's very like slow walking and putting it down, and then maybe taking a couple of breaths, and then picking up the next foot and putting it down. And so it went. And I kept thinking, put your awareness in your feet. Put your awareness in your feet. Make this a practice. At one point, Russell went on ahead thinking that he was going to be noble and put his pack down at the pass and come back and get mine. But I wouldn't let him do it. I was really determined that I was going to do this thing, this get up over this pass by myself. And of course, what happened was I got to the pass, finally, and, um, and going down the other side, while it was somewhat easier, was also quite difficult because it was very steep and we were, by that time, very tired. And we arrived at a campsite, not the one that we had thought we were going to get to, one that was considerably closer. Um, very wobbly and very tired. It wasn't very pretty. You know, it just was not graceful, athletic, strong, any of those things. Strong enough, graceful enough, and athletic enough, but not pretty. And that's how it is here, isn't it? You know, that there are lots of times when it's not pretty. I can remember at one point in my own practice when I realized that simply, sometimes simply getting to the end of a sitting without leaping up and running out of the room was a major triumph. And you all know this. There are other times when you can sit for two hours or an hour and a half or something like that, and it's smooth and feels wonderful. But there are those sittings when just getting to the end is wonderful. We tend to discount this, but I was thinking as I wrote this talk a bit about when babies are learning to walk. And you know, when babies are learning to walk, they fall down all the time. They don't think anything of it. You know, they fall down, they look around, they get up, they wobble and teeter, and they fall down, and they get up, and they take another step. And we need to bring that same kind of gumption and grit to our own practice, where we get up and we take another step and then another step. But nonetheless, at 12,000 feet, or probably more likely at 11,693 feet, the question was, why am I doing this? What, I mean, why on God's earth would I want to go over this pass? You know, what could possibly be on the other side that is worth this um, rather difficult, difficult work? 4 a.m. I'm out here doing walking meditation in the snow. This is crazy. Yet my heart is held captive by the vast, quiet space. So there's always something, isn't there? There's something. We've talked a lot about intention, you know, that somewhere we've caught a glimpse of something, a glimpse of what it might be to be free in different moments in our lives, in many moments in our lives, a glimpse of what it might be not to suffer so much. And so the heart, the heart responds to that glimpse. You know, the heart goes, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. 
and starts leaning um, in that direction. I was born into an East Coast, quite intellectual, liberal, somewhat socialist, not to say communist, family. My mother thought that, and still thinks, that religion is the opiate of the masses, and kind of a disgusting activity. And my father, while his feelings about it are not as strong as hers, certainly wasn't willing to do battle with her on the subject. So consequently, um, we had no particular religious training as children. And in fact, if anything, um, the family energy went away from that. When I was very, very young, I have no idea how, how young, but I would guess around four or five, I found myself really drawn to the Catholic Church. I loved the statues of the Blessed Mother that would be out in front of these little churches in New England, which was where we were living at the time. And I thought all those little girls in their little white First Communion dresses that people wore in those days were just divine. I sometimes wonder whether I fell in love with the dresses first. It's possible. It's possible. I'd have to own it. But nonetheless, there was something that I responded to and that I resonated. I have no idea where this came from in my being. None. Because I don't have any Catholic relatives. We had no Catholic friends. Um, And as I said, my mother um, thought all of this was pretty disgusting anyway. So I would watch out of the car window, oh, there she is, and oh, there she is. And I would just feel so happy when I would see these statues. And then as I got to be a little older, when Christmas time would come and Um, In those days, there were a number of Christmas cards that would come through that would have pictures of Mary and the baby Jesus or the Holy Family or something on them. And so after Christmas was over, there would come a day when these cards would all be in the waste paper basket by the desk. And I would go and I would fish out the ones that I particularly liked and take them upstairs and I buried them in one of my drawers and under, you know, clothing and stuff like that, places where I was sure my mother wouldn't look. And I began to have these little church services. On Sunday morning, I would get the cards out and I would line them up (laughs) early in the morning before they woke up. And I would sit there and say prayers. After a while, um, we acquired an encyclopedia and I discovered that the entire text of the Hail Mary was in the encyclopedia that we had. I was very happy and learned it quite quickly. So now I had a prayer. And in those days, we also said the Lord's Prayer in school. So I learned that. So gradually, gradually, what I did was I raised myself Catholic. I'm told by my Catholic friends that that's by far the best way to be Catholic, is to raise yourself Catholic. Possibly true. And I loved it, and I learned what I could, and I did it all secretly. I was completely closeted because I was sure if they found out, they would disown me. 
And I don't know what I thought disowning was, but I was sure that that's what would happen. And so I kept it a secret. After a while, when I got to be around 11 or 12, I had a couple of friends that I let in on the secret. And at some point I discovered that I could spend the night with one of my Catholic friends on Saturday night, and then I could go to church on Sunday morning. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And um, so it went. The heart followed what it had seen somewhere. It's as though I fell into you know, some crack in the universe or some past life reverberation. Who knows what it was? And the heart responded, and it stayed with it regardless. It's actually a piece of me that I quite like, that little girl who had this kind of spunk and courage and grit and gumption to do this thing despite the fact that um, she was really, really afraid of what her family would think. When I finally did come out of the closet at 17, I actually in the end decided to be an Anglican because I didn't want to have 11 children. And um, this was, after all, in the 50s in, in Maine by this time. And when I was baptized, my mother pronounced it disgusting, true to form. So, so I followed the heart. We do this. You've all done this. I, every time I tell this story, you know, I get a few people say, oh, I raised myself secretly Catholic or this or that or the other thing, um, too. There's, there's probably some of you here in this room that have, have, there's been some way in which your heart has responded to something and you followed it all the way through, even though it was scary. Around the time I was in high school, um, I had a grandmother who also with a great had been a widow all of her grown-up life and um, who then decided that she wanted to be a missionary to the heathen in Kentucky. She was a member of the Church of, Naz- of the Nazarene. And so she took herself off to Kentucky to do this thing at the ripe old age of, I don't know, 68 or 70, something like that. Um, which is a piece, it's, I, I sense that that's some of where I inherited this little bit of spunk, although I wasn't close enough to her to have gotten the other piece from her. So we follow the heart. Sometimes it's long and slow like that. It takes years, and, and we just follow it one step at a time, one little event at a time. Sometimes it comes bursting out, and there's intense passion that erupts, and it's like, take me, you know, whatever. This came while watching the turkey vultures the other day when I was up, way up on the ridge. It starts with some funeral instructions. When I die, place my body on a rock high on the spirit mountain. And then it goes on. Hey, turkey vultures, peck out my belly. Digest me into your sailing, soaring sky. So that place of passion, of take me, of of a great deal of courage and spunk. And there are stories like this in the Buddhist literature, and you'll find them particularly if you read the Jataka tales, which are the stories of the life of the Buddha before he was the Buddha, during all of his many, many, many lifetimes training to be a Buddha. And one of the stories 
um, that has long been my favorite is the story of a little parrot. And this parrot lived in the forest. And as all forests sometimes do, one day it caught fire. And there was a great deal of distress in the forest and the animals were running around and, the, and they were afraid and they were trying to get out of the way of the fire. And the <coughs> parrot looked down from the sky where, where um, it was quite safe up there and saw the distress of its friends. So it decided it needed to do something. So it went to a nearby stream and it dived in and it got a little bit of water on its wings and then it flew over the forest and it shook its little wings. And these few drops of water would fall on the flames and the flames, a few flames would hiss. And then the parrot would go back and it would dive in again and it would get a few more drops of water and it would fly over the, the flames and, and so it went. So the parrot is struggling valiantly to put out the fire with this little bit of water and up in the heaven realms, this is a Buddhist story, so lots of realms, some of the gods are watching, and they think this is pretty funny. What is this parrot trying to do? This is ridiculous. You can't put out a fire with a few drops of water. And so one of the gods comes down, he puts himself into the body of a hawk, and he comes swooping down, and he says, what are you trying to do? This is so silly. And the parrot says, I don't have time to talk to you. He said, if you can't do anything, he said, just go away. Don't bother me. There's a fire to put out. If you want to do something, go over there. Dive into the river. Get some water. Get to work. The god was so impressed with the gumption of the spirit that he went back and Tears came to his eyes, and he wept. And the weeping of this god, it said, then brought the rain that put out the forest fire. And so the parrot, with this courage and with this spunk, sort of saved all of his friends and the forest. As you sit here, as we all go deeply into practice, this place of resolve of diligence of steadfastness begins to open for some of you i've been hearing in interviews it's a it's a very simple kind of process sometimes it doesn't even sound like so much you know i saw that what i needed to do was surrender one step at a time i'll be here for this step ah okay I'll be here for this step. All right? I'll be here for this step. I'll be here for the in-breath. You can do that. I'll be here for the out-breath. I can do that. So it's a very simple letting go into just this much, not very much, just a step, just a breath, one at a time. I learned that. I was sitting at Barry in 1989 when the earthquake happened in California. It happened the second night I was there. And for a variety of reasons, um, I was told that the earthquake had happened. Nothing particular had happened to my family. Um, but nonetheless, I live in Santa Cruz, which was devastated. 
And um, in a couple of phone calls that went back and forth, I found out that the freeway had collapsed near Berkeley. And I knew, and I knew what time the earthquake had happened. And I knew a number of people who were normally on that piece of freeway at that time of day. And then I got to sit, not knowing much more else. It was quite an amazing retreat, actually, because you know how it is. You're sitting there, and somebody gives a talk about some Buddhist thing or other, and you think, oh, when I go home, I'll go to the bookstore, and I'll get this book, and I'll read about that. And then I would think, oh, maybe the bookstore isn't there anymore. And in fact, it wasn't. It was gone. Or I would think, oh, well, when I go home, I'll go to this or that, you know, restaurant, store, name it, I'll see this friend, and then I would think, oh, but the earthquake, maybe they're not there anymore. Maybe that person is dead. Blessedly, nobody who was close to me died. But I didn't know. It was really, really scary. That's always true. It's always true. You're all having those thoughts. And you don't know that the bookstore will be there, that you know, the friend will be there, that the restaurant will still be there. We never know those things. But when something like the earthquake had happened, it's a little realer. We get it that we don't know. And much of my practice during that retreat was just that kind of surrendering, of step by step. You know, it would just seem impossible. How can I sit another day? And then I would think, well, okay, I will walk, I'll just do that lap, I'll just go from here to there. And so I would, and I would sometimes actually say, I surrender, I surrender, and then I'd walk. And then I'd turn around, and then I'd say, okay, I surrender, and I'd walk back. And back and forth it went, one step at a time, one breath at a time. Sometimes, for some of us, um, different kinds of devotional practices really support this place of surrender and support the gumption, support that, that little voice that's sitting in there going, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I've been really touched watching this altar in the back sprout all the different little objects and pictures and, and things that Um, people put on there as a way of honoring some relationship or some space in their lives. And and watching people stop in front of it to reflect on it for a moment or to bow or whatever it is that different people do. And know that sometimes being on retreat, having that object, that ring, that photograph, whatever it is, on the altar provides some sense of support and nourishment for the place that is, um, is trying hard, is really wanting to do this practice. For me, a number of people have noticed that I bow when I come in and um, have asked about it. I do. I like to bow, actually. I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years doing practice in the monastic world and they do a lot of bowing in the monastic world. They bow when they come in, and they bow before they go out, and they bow in the dining room because there's a statue of the Buddha there, and they bow to the teachers, and they bow at any opportunity. If you can't think of anything else to do in a monastery, you bow, I think, is probably the, the way it goes. And I actually started doing it 
actually before monastic practice, um, at a time when I was doing a lot of letting go in my life. And it was a surrender practice. And, and there was something for me about putting my body in that position. And I would actually get all the way down there and I would say, I surrender. I surrender to the Buddha. And then I'd bow again. I surrender to the Dharma. And then I'd bow again. I surrender to the Sangha. Just trying to let go in any way that I could. And not being able to get there in any rational thinking, linear way, but could only do it with my body. And that doing with my body, for me, it's not for everybody, some of you it really wouldn't work for, but for me, supported my practice and gave me the nourishment that I needed um, in order to carry on at a time that was difficult. Sometimes spunk and gumption, I think, are about placing ourselves quite intentionally in difficult forms, like a retreat, for example. You've come here, you knew it wouldn't be. Is there anyone here who didn't know? I mean, you all knew it would be hard. You've all sat retreats before or had some exposure to the retreat world. You knew that it would be silent. You knew that you wouldn't get to order up your favorite Ben and Jerry's ice cream. You knew that you wouldn't be able to talk on the telephone. You knew all of those things. And you still did it. And some of you not only did that, but some of you decided, well, while I'm there, I think I'll do eight precepts instead of five. So you're skipping one meal a day, and you're just having breakfast and lunch and not eating the evening meal. You've placed yourself in a renunciate form of life for two weeks, for a month, or for two months, depending on how long you're here. And that choosing this way, choosing this form, has been a way to support your practice, to bring some energy, to bring some resolve and some diligence and some steadfastness into it. I'm always amazed with my monk and nun friends. Monks, you think five precepts is a lot. Monks have 227 precepts. And nuns, who are an unruly lot, have 311. So, just to keep them in line. And they do this on purpose. There's no one who goes into that life without knowing that they're taking on a set of antiquated, archaic, really difficult rules. But there's something about the challenge, the willingness to take on that particular form as practice. I've been really touched. The nuns at Amravati, nuns in the Theravadan world, the actual full, fully ordained order died out a long time ago. And so nuns in Thailand, for example, Burma, are only usually only 10 precept nuns. They're not really fully ordained nuns. Their role in the monastic world has actually mostly been to serve the monks, not to have their own monastic life, their own meditation life. That's changing. It's changing, but slowly. However, in the West, with this community at Amravati, um, as Western women came into the order, they certainly were not coming in in order to cook dinner for the monks. And... um, They were coming in because they wanted to be monastics themselves. And so 
what to do, you know, how to create some place of egalitarian lifestyle in, in a system of rules that in every way mitigates against it. They didn't, they didn't stay with just their ten precepts. They couldn't take on the Vinaya, they're not allowed to. They went ahead and created 150 training rules, new ones, more modern ones, a little more sensible to our way of thinking, although probably 2,000 years from now they'll seem pretty antiquated. And they're, they're placing themselves within another difficult, strong, form of practice in order to have this structure that brings some support to them. It's a very interesting thing to consider, actually, you know, to look at what is this, that we, where, this place where we surrender, we, we give over to a practice. James mentioned it really simply and beautifully the other day when he talked about his vow that every day he would put his body into the position to meditate. That's surrender. Every day I will do that. To just that it's not 227 rules, maybe it's just one, but it's a big one. And it requires that kind of surrender. And when we give over in that way, there's some kind of shift that happens. You know, there's some way in which the I me mind place is no longer the main agenda. And we let go into something that's bigger than we are. Here's a poem from Rumi. Probably need my glasses for. He says, some nights stay up till dawn, as the moon sometimes does for the sun. Be a full bucket pulled up the dark way of a well, then lifted out into light. Some nights stay up to dawn, so that when we give over into this bigger place, then sometimes we're lifted up into the light. One of the other things I've been seeing as I've been talking with people is a very interesting place in practice that I think requires a lot of gumption, and it's the place of living with questions. Most of you probably came to this retreat with questions, some kind of question, a question about your practice, about your relationship, about your work, about what to do next in one way or another. This is what Rilke says. He says, I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you, because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Probably some of the best practice advice I've ever received. To live the questions themselves. You don't have to figure it out. You don't. You put the question in the middle. It's like koan practice, or this is my understanding of koan practice. 
You put the question in there, you drop it into the soup. And then you let it reverberate. And it echoes through your life. And it sits there and it echoes and it echoes and it echoes. You don't answer it, you just keep sitting and walking, sitting and walking. The question sits there, what to do with my job, relationship, life, house, dog, cat, whatever, practice. You sit, you walk, you sit, you walk. And interestingly enough, if we do this with great patience, what seems to happen is that we do live into the answer. And in a bit, we begin to see, oh, look, I seem to be going in this direction more than in that direction. Everything I do is in this direction. Or whatever happens that the answer begins to show itself. Or sometimes with practice, there are big practice questions. Who am I? Wonderful question. Let it hang there and reverberate through your day of practice. Who or what is aware? What is this business that's watching? Who's watching anyway? What is, what is nothing? Is there nothing? No thing? There's, um, I think it's Jacob Burma says, God is the nothing that wants to become something. So what's going on with nothing and something and emptiness and being? And what is Nibbana anyway? And what is liberation? And letting those kinds of big, big questions just echo through your days and nights of practice. That takes courage. I think it's much harder to leave the questions unanswered, whether they're life questions, life koans, I've come to call them, or whether they're the questions, the big questions of practice and what is it that we're doing. It's hard to let them just sit there. And the mind wants so to figure things out. It's always scrambling around trying to figure things out. And that the place of courage, of diligence, of resolve is the place of just saying, yeah, the question is there. It's just going to be there for a while, and I'll let it hang and see what happens. The whole process is slow. The whole process is slow. It's really, really fast. Every now and then you read a story about somebody who, you know, I've heard, I remember hearing, actually meeting some people who'd studied with a teacher who'd been walking on the streets of Nebraska one day, and boom, something happened, huge opening, saw all kinds of things. I don't know. I never met the man. I don't know whether it's true or not. But... Once in a while you hear those stories, but much more often you hear stories of long, slow, diligent, high gumption, high grit practice, where it's one step after another. Some years ago, my almost probably favorite all-time teaching from the Dalai Lama, he told us that you should evaluate your spiritual practice in 10 year increments. This is very good news. So for those of you who are leaving the retreat in a few days, you don't need to just evaluate it on the basis of two weeks or one month. You, know, you don't need to evaluate it even on the basis of six months. It's not long enough. You can't tell what's happening. Ten 
year increments. And for most of us, once in a while this backfires on me, but for most of us, if you look back 10 years, you go, oh, it's true. I'm sitting more, I'm a little kinder, I'm a little more patient. I unraveled this or that thing. Oh, okay, 10 years. It's all right. I can see I've made some progress. It's like gardening, you know? If you put the little bitty seed in and you keep digging it up, you know, like you want to do, is it sprouting, you know, have its roots come out? Yeah, what's happening? What's happening? It won't survive. When you put these different seeds in the ground, then you have to patiently kind of wait, water them, weed them, some things that can take a couple of years, you know, asparagus, raspberries, those kinds of things, takes a long time before you get a harvest, and you have to wait for the harvest. It's not so easy to do that. It's really ordinary. We sit, we walk, we eat, you take a shower, just this. It's even a little gritty, you know? It's, um, somebody gave me some stuff to wash my feet with. It's got little bits of pumice in it, you know? So it's like rocks. You know, if you, I looked in the bathtub the other night after I'd used it. There were all these little rocks on the bottom of the bathtub. It's very gritty, you know? And some of our practices are like that. One year when I was visiting at Tashahara, I went into the ladies' room. I closed the door. I sat down. And there on the door was a sutra for me to consider while I was in the toilet. And, of course, the sense is this is just as much practice as anything else that you do all day long. And to be just as, as dignified by your attention and by your surrender. So there's one other thing I want to point to. When we surrender, when we when we let go into our practice, when we give up, when we let questions stay the way they are, when we start noticing, there's something that I think we begin to see that is enormously supportive of continuing and deepening courage and diligence in this practice. And that's the place where you begin to notice the nature of mindfulness itself. Mindfulness is so kind. Once at the end of a retreat, I had this, this thought went through, mindfulness is the best mother. Mindfulness is the mother that I always wanted. Completely accepting, no comments, no criticisms, no judgmental remarks, Mindfulness itself, not the little blip, blip, blip that goes around it, but mindfulness itself just sees. It sees totally. It sees fully. It sees everything. There's nothing that's hidden. Just being present with just what is. When we're being fully mindful, we bring our awareness, we bring our knowing, we bring our consciousness to any particular moment. And I mention this, one of the questions that comes up a lot, we've talked about it a couple of times in talks, is the issue of forgiveness. It's a big one in practice, and it can really slow us down when we're feeling like we haven't forgiven ourselves, or 
There's some piece of forgiveness work that we haven't done. And it's interesting because, you know, if you look in the Buddhist text, you won't find forgiveness. You know, if you try to find, where does the Buddha talk about forgiveness? I haven't found it yet. He talks about kindness. He talks about compassion. He talks about wisdom and seeing clearly. And after a while, I came to realize this is the same thing. He's talking about forgiveness because this is actually the nature of forgiveness. You know, that, that this teaching ourselves to keep the heart open no matter what to ourselves or towards others is actually a practice of forgiveness. It is the ground of our practice. It really is the ground of our practice. This place of mindfulness, of keeping the heart open, of being just simply no comment with what is. That's such a kind and compassionate act. It doesn't matter what you're mindful of. It doesn't. Mindfulness itself has no comment. It just sees. So it's this wise, mindful, compassionate, heart-mind place. It's important because sometimes I think we have this idea that we have to wait around for someone to forgive us. You know? And really, my sense of it is what we need, all we need is the gumption, the spunk, if you will, to step into the place of forgiveness. It's always there. There's nothing that keeps you from it. It's just this process of stepping into it. So remember Angulimala? Those of you who were here at the first part of the retreat will remember Angulimala, the story of um, the fellow who killed a thousand people. I didn't mention, actually, when I gave that talk, his name, Angulimala, came because um, a mala is a necklace and angulis are fingers. And he had to chop off the finger of each of his victims in order, that's how he kept count. You know, so you could sort of like a mala, you keep count with a mala. And when in the end he encountered the Buddha, and he tried to get the Buddha to stop because he was going to be his next victim, and the Buddha said, Stop. He said, Stop. I stopped a long time ago. When are you going to stop? And Angulimala stopped. Angulimala stepped into just this place I'm talking about of, of some place of kindness and compassion towards his own being. He, he didn't try to pretend he hadn't done all of those things. He just moved into a different place with it. The Buddha didn't forgive him. The Buddha didn't say, I forgive you. He just said, when are you going to stop? Simple as that. Simple as that. And big as that. And it's a place that's important because it's the place when we begin to realize, oh, There's nothing I can't bring to my practice of mindfulness. That gives us even bigger and deeper and more courage to work with wherever our practice takes us next. I've been reading, I read um, right after Christmas, I tend to have a kind of a hibernation time at that time of year, and I read a lot and sit by the fire and enjoy my dogs and so one of the things I was reading was a book um, called Cave in the Snow, which some of you have probably read, by Ani Tenzin Palmo. And Tenzin Palmo is a nun in the Tibetan world. 
And she's done many, many years of practice. I don't know how many years now. Many. Thirty, probably. Maybe more. And some of that practice she did in a cave high in the Himalayas. Little tiny cave was not even long enough to really lie down in. So, and many Tibetan practitioners don't lie down. You want spunk, this is spunk. And they create a little meditation box so that they can kind of lean up against the sides, but they don't ever actually really lie down. Although some of the people I know have been in them said you can get kind of crunked over and get a little bit of a snooze every now and then. And she did at one point a three-year retreat. Three years, a woman in a cave in the Himalayas. It's true, they'd added onto the cave a little teeny bit, so it had a door. At one point, um, they made the door so it opened into the cave. And one of the, her Indian friends who was helping her to build this wanted it, the door to open out, a door should open out. No, she said for some reason she really wanted the door to open in. But sometime later, during this three-year retreat, she got snowed in, incredibly snowed in. Huge amounts of snow, completely covered the cave, covered the outside wall, feet and feet of snow. Pitch black dark in there. And at some point she realized that if she didn't do something, she was going to die. And she was very scared. And then she could hear her teacher's voice, the way one can sometimes, and the voice said, dig. Isn't that wonderful? So practical sometimes. And so she was able to open the door because the door opened in. Imagine, if it had opened out, she wouldn't have been able to open the door. She opened the door and began, scoopful by scoopful, with whatever it was she had to dig with, not much of anything fancy, um, she dug her way out and survived. And now... She's not in that cave anymore. She's traveling and she's um, trying to create a a nunnery and a training center for women and nuns um, in the village near where she had that cave in Tashijang in India. And she sometimes um, speaks very powerfully and very passionately. Has had, there's a wonderful story about her at a teacher meeting with the Dalai Lama and all of these old Tibetan lamas, the real conservative establishment in the Tibetan world, and speaking out with great ferocity and passion about how the nuns in that particular lineage really are not getting the support that they need in order to live. In the end, the Dalai Lama wept. She spoke so powerfully. So she's learned, I think her, her practice, this, all this grit and gumption and resolve and courage that she's brought to her practice has then just continued to nourish a bigger and bigger heart and deeper wisdom so that she can speak out in a way that will be very important probably in the future of the Buddhist world and particularly for women in the Buddhist world. So one last story. Because this all did start fairly early in the Buddhist world. And that's with the Buddha's aunt, Mahapajapati. Mahapajapati was um, his aunt, her sister, uh, Queen Maya, was the mother of the Buddha who died a week after the Buddha was born. 
And so the Buddha's aunt actually nursed him, it said, and raised him and did all of the things that a mother does for a child. Um, and then when he was a young man, he left. He, after he, he left his family and went off to the, work with these different teachers and to train, became, you know, let go of that training, became enlightened. And at some point after his enlightenment, when he was teaching, he came back to visit. And he actually wasn't very well received. Now, his family wasn't so sure. I mean, he was supposed to have been the king, and then he went off and became a Buddha, and you know, wasn't quite what they wanted. <laughs> it's always that way, isn't it? <laughs> Just like my mother, really, <laughs> who still can't figure out why it is that I'm doing what it is that I do. And, but his aunt listened, and she actually um, began to open to his teachings and invited him to teach. And then a, a bit later on, when she was widowed, she decided that she wanted to become a nun. So I'm going to read you some of the bits of this because it's, it's such a good story. So she went to him and um, she said, It would be good, Lord, if women could be allowed to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless state under the Dharma and the discipline of the Tathagata. So there were no nuns at this point at all. And he says, enough. Don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. Such a guy response, right? <laughs> um, it certainly was in those days. <laughs> no one here, I'm sure. I'm sure. And so she asks a second time and a third time, and the Buddha says, no, you know, I'm not going to consider it. And he leaves. He sets out for the next village. So she doesn't just give up. This is the wonderful thing about the story. She shaves her head. She puts on yellow robes. And barefoot, she follows him to the next town, 150 miles. I was thinking about that today. How far is 150 miles? And I realized, well, I live 125 miles from here in Santa Cruz. So let's say Monterey. She walked from here to Monterey barefoot with some of the other women who wanted to be nuns. So that's, that's gumption. I mean, this takes a lot of courage. And she stands outside the hall. She's weeping. And Ananda comes along. Ananda saves the day, actually. And... Um, so he says, I'll ask the Buddha, figuring perhaps if a man asks them, um, the, he, the Buddha would let them in. And Ananda asks three times, and the Buddha says the same thing. He says, enough, Ananda, don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. So finally, Ananda gets cagey. He says, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness, to realize the fruits of stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arahantship? Well, can they become fully enlightened? And the Buddha says, yes, Ananda, they are able. And the, Ananda says, well then, if women then are able to realize perfection, and since Pashapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, nurse, foster mother, when your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast, it would be good if women <laughs> could be allowed to enter into homelessness. So then the Buddha says, if then Ananda Pajapati accepts the eight special rules, 
let that be reckoned as her ordination. So there became these eight extra rules before there were a number more than eight um, for the nuns, which allowed them to come in. Now it's said that actually later on, Pajapati went back to the Buddha and said, I don't like those eight special rules. I don't want as the most senior nun to have to bow to the most junior monk. The, the Buddha wouldn't give on that one. The eight special rules remained to this day, actually. So if you think about the little engine, you know, there's that place where the little engine finally gets to the top and going down the other side is saying, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can. And I think of that a bit as I think of Pajapati and, and all of these Anitens and Palmo and my grandmother, you know, that place of somehow um, continuing to do it one moment of surrender after another until we begin to see, oh look, I know I can do this. I can do it one step at a time. It's such a long, slow process. And in this process, we're nourished. We're nourished by our various kinds of practices that touch and open the heart. And we're nourished by what we find to be true of mindfulness of this place of complete and total acceptance and forgiveness. So one last poem. Bruised and battered and very weary, after 50 years of struggle, endless searching, endless misplaced love, I come to rest in the blessed lap of awareness. There will be no abandonment because there cannot be. There will be no judging because there cannot be. There is no need to search elsewhere because there is nowhere else. Safely held, completely at rest, the mind relaxes and there is no longer any need for me. On this outbreath, as instructed in a dream of long ago, I give thanks and I go. So with all the spunk and gumption in your being, let's sit for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.